Well, this morning, um, we're, uh, we're jumping back into John, and uh, after a, about three-week break, I guess, from John. And um, this morning, we're going to be looking at being judged. Um, we've all felt that before. We've all felt what it's like to be judged, um, and we've all done it before. We've all judged people before. Sometimes we judge people for things that they actually definitely did wrong. Sometimes we judge them wrongly. Uh, we misjudge things. And then the same goes for us. Sometimes people give us judgment and condemnation for things that we are definitely guilty of. And then sometimes we're kind of judged and condemned for things that we're not guilty of. And it seems uh, harder and harder, I think, um, more than ever to avoid it even these days. You, know, you say this and this group of people or friends judges you for this thing, or if you say the other thing, then the other group judges you. Uh, and even especially now with uh, politics, we're, we're expected to be either all in in this camp or all in on the other camp. And if you're not all in on the exact line items, kind of wholesale believing in one party or the other, then you're kind of seen as a hypocrite or soft on certain issues or wishy-washy. And, and all that is is just political kind of Phariseeism. It's just kind of political Pharisees saying you have to be exactly this or that. It's just another way for us to, uh, to bite and devour each other, like we talked about last week, uh, to kind of puff our chest out in our own self-righteousness, uh, because you know, we, we know that we see things exactly clearly all the time. Now, we come to a portion of Scripture that's uh, quite famous, um, but also a little bit tricky as well. Uh, most have heard the story of the woman caught in adultery uh, when Jesus... Uh, said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. A lot of us know this story. Uh, it's a kind of a gripping and really fantastic story highlighting the grace and forgiveness of Christ and the reality of Christ forgiving, uh, forgiving us, giving us acceptance despite some of the even horrible sins that we've committed. Uh, however, this story is a bit tricky because it probably doesn't actually belong in the Gospel of John. Uh, maybe it doesn't even actually belong in the canon of Scripture. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty, but I'll just give you a quick overview of why that might be. And most of your Bibles probably have a little footnote that kind of says something about the earliest Greek manuscripts not having the story. Uh, the story was found in the, the manuscripts used for the King James Bible uh, in 1611. But eventually, as we discovered older Greek manuscripts, uh, this part of the story was not in there. Uh, basically, John chapter 7, verse 53 to uh, 810. Now, uh, St. Jerome, who translated the Bible uh, into Latin in the 300s, um, my family and I, when we were in Israel, uh, we actually visited his residence and his library uh, in Bethlehem, which was really cool to see where he translated uh, the Bible into Latin. Uh, he said when he was translating in the 300s that the text was actually found in Greek manuscripts. Uh, so apparently there were maybe some manuscripts that either have been destroyed since then or we haven't found that potentially even had this. Uh, and others, like Augustine in 350 AD, also knew of the story. Uh, and Eusebius, who was the first church historian, he was born in 265. He's the first guy who wrote about church history. Um, he learned the story as handed down from a guy named Papias, uh, who was a, a man born in 60 AD. So even a guy born in the first century knew the story and handed it down, either orally or written. And so even Eusebius in 265 knew of a version of the story that came from the very, the very first century. So it was included, because of all that, in the Latin translation of Jerome's, which eventually became kind of the standard translation for the Western world. 
But despite Jerome's claim that it was in some of those ancient Greek manuscripts and Eusebius' claim that it was handed down from the first century, uh, it has not been found in any of the Greek manuscripts that we have today. Uh, so that said, though, a large contingency of scholars still do believe the story is actually valid. It just maybe doesn't, uh, shouldn't be in the Gospel of John. Uh, they think it's a real story, a true story, a true account of Christ, reliable uh, and its historicity, but just that John probably wasn't the one who wrote it. Some actually believe it should be in Luke's gospel. Uh, and so most Bibles will have it in there as kind of a footnote, maybe some kind of addendum. Uh, so it is a reliable story, uh, widely accepted uh, by the earliest of, of church fathers, but inconclusive on what part it should play in the book of John, and even to a lesser extent, what part it should play in the canon of Scripture so some preachers skip over the story for that reason, because they're just not sure. Um, others still find great value in it, since it's most likely genuine. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read through the story, but rather than just simply focusing only on that text, as I, maybe I normally would, we're going to draw from some other scriptures that teach and illustrate the same exact principles. Uh, because the good news is that even though we don't know exactly where this should be, this story doesn't actually change or take away anything from what we know about Jesus and other parts of God's word. So even if the story maybe shouldn't be included uh, in the Gospel of John, the truths that it contains are already found uh, in the rest of scriptures. Uh, so I want to pray now and ask the Lord to lead us, guide us, that his word would uh, go to work in us, find a, a home in our hearts transform us and conform us into the image of Christ. Father, as we gather here this morning and uh, we, we worship, we pray for one another, we say goodbyes to those we love, we pray for their, uh, their next part of their journey and we even look to our own lives and wonder what comes tomorrow and the next day for us. One thing we know is sure is that your word is trustworthy and true. Your promises are everlasting, fixed in the heavens, immovable. We're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And even as we look as a country to a new chapter of our nation, uh, we know that presidents change, politics change, but your word stands forever. Your blood stands forever. You're a king who lives forevermore. We never have to reelect you or vote for you. You're the king of kings. And we love that we are part of this kingdom that can't be shaken. That your word is true. It's alive and active. It dwells in us, it changes us. So we're thankful, Lord, for that great truth, that great promise. So we open your word now, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us and guide us into all truth as you do. And in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So John, actually chapter 7, verse 53, is where we actually really start. Uh, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, uh, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. Um, this was at uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and so they're kind of at the temple area, and then it says in 53 that each then went to their own house. So in John chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus, he didn't have a house, 
in Jerusalem, he went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So in typical fashion, the Pharisees are once again trying to, to trap Jesus. They don't like how Jesus can seem to be a bit elusive, answering their questions in a certain way that doesn't quite fit their religious mold. He certainly doesn't fit their political mold. And he finds a way to turn the tables back on them. This is what he does. It's his M.O. To look to their self-righteousness and kind of expose their hypocrisy. And so if previously a, a Sabbath scandal, which is what he tried before, the, the healing on the Sabbath, if that scandal couldn't catch him, they had to pull out the big guns. A woman caught in the very act of adultery. And there's no way they're thinking that he can get out of this one. And again, keep in mind, entrapment here is their motive. They're trying to be the religious police and playing gotcha, trying to catch him. And at this time, the, the Jews, they were, see, they were allowed to self-rule themselves among the, the Roman government. So they were able to uh, kind of call the shots on legal matters for a lot of the legal matters. They kind of had that sort of, uh, sort of quasi-sovereignty among themselves. But they could not exercise capital punishment. That was something only the Roman government could do. Now, the Old Testament law stated that certain cases of adultery were illegal, according to Old Testament law, and they were punishable by stoning. So the Pharisees are trying to really catch Jesus here, because if he, being the upright teacher of the law that he claims to be, if he replies and says to them, yes, stone her according to the Old Testament law, well, they could run to the Roman officials and tell them that he's taking Roman law into his own hands illegally. So they're kind of trying to catch him there. But if he says, no, 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 don't stone her, then they could run to the Sanhedrin, which are the, the Jewish, Jewish officials, and complain to them that he's not obeying the Old Testament law. So they're going, man, we got him this time. What's he going to say? They're trying to trap him in a web, a web of both theological and political trouble. And this kind of sounds familiar to a lot of things that we're seeing even today trying to kind of navigate between political, theological, and this guy over here is trying to catch you, this guy over here is trying to catch you, and everyone's trying to play gotcha with each other. And then Jesus begins to write on the ground, and we don't know what he wrote, some different speculations. Some people think that maybe he was writing down the sins of the people who were about to condemn him, starting with the older ones, maybe because they had more sin, because they had more years racked up. 
But it says that the older ones started leaving first. Other people think that maybe he wrote something from the Old Testament that kind of convicted them. Uh, a couple of guys, actually, I read that was, was pretty funny. They thought that maybe he was just drawing on the ground just to kind of act indifferent and just not listen. He's just drawing, like, pictures and stuff, and he looks up, oh, are you guys still here? Oh. Like, like he's just sort of, you know, kind of acting like he's not really listening to them. But we don't know what he was saying. We don't know what he was, or what he was writing. We don't know what he was doing. But we know that one by one, these accusers walked away. And then, as he says famously, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, a couple quick observations before we move into some of the related texts that illustrate this more, and we're going to continue to refer back to this, but it's important for us to note that Jesus does not condone her sin. It's not what he's, he's not just looking the other way. Oh, no big deal. It's just adultery. He's not excusing it. He's not just looking the other way. He actually affirms that she is actually in sin and even commands her to go and sin no more. So there's an acknowledgement there. And the glory of this passage is that despite the fact that God sees and condemns our sin, for believers, those of us who are in Christ, he does not condemn us. That's the, the beauty of this passage. Even a few verses later, Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, 15, you judge, he says to the Pharisees, according to the flesh, but I judge no one. We see in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so once again, Jesus here actually agrees. He agrees with the Pharisees that, yes, she is a sinner. But he has not come to condemn the world. But instead, he came to save many. In John chapter 3, we saw this a couple months ago, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So now I'd like to take us to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, as we look at a very similarly themed scripture. We actually kind of looked at this one a, a month or so ago as well. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus here, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to the crowd, Judge not that you be not judged. And here's why. Here's why you shouldn't judge. Because with the judgment you pronounce, whatever judgment you pronounce on others, you will also be judged. With the measure you use, whatever standard you use to judge people, that'll also be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's this log in your own eye, this two by four sticking out of your eye? You hypocrite. First, 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 take the log out of your own eye and then, only then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I hope that you can see that although John 8, 1 through 10 might not 
Maybe it's not supposed to be in the book of John. We see that the theme and the truth that it teaches is very clear elsewhere in Scripture. Now, it's no secret uh, in our church that I love baseball because baseball is awesome. And I know a lot of folks here love baseball. And baseball in our country has long been considered America's pastime. But in the last few years, it seems like baseball has been replaced with another favorite pastime. And it's, it's not football. It's not basketball. But it's this sport that's been sweeping the nation called stone throwing. It's this sport that everyone likes. Everyone, everyone plays this game. Everyone loves this sport. We love stone throwing. We love seeing other people who are doing things we don't like. And we like to pick up a stone and then just lob it at them. And everyone gets in on it of all ages. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, how old you are, where you come from. We just love this, this sport called stone throwing. And it's really taken over our country. Some parts of the country call it gotcha. That's the game they play, trying to catch you in a little trap. I, I like to call it speck spotting. Right? We go around looking for specks in people's eyes. Hey, hey, you're doing something wrong there, buddy. Hey, you got a speck in your eye. Or maybe some people call it just fault finding, another name for this sport, or nitpicking. But we all love the sports, and we're so, we're so good at it. Like, we're all Hall of Famers when it comes to stone throwing. And it's been sweeping the nation. It's been sweeping even the church. And it goes back thousands of years. It's actually not a new sport. But we've become really good at being kind of the moral police in the lives of our neighbors, our family, our friends, people we go to school with and work with, or the theology police and you think about our society, think about the media, you think about social media, all the virtue signaling, cancel culture. It's all about finding the faults in the other guy. That's the whole goal. You win when you find the most faults in the other guy. That's how you win the game. And the more faults you find, the more points you get. The more points you get, then the more you get propped up to this Hall of Fame status. And so all these different things that we're being taught, not that we actually need to be taught because our flesh does it on our own, but then we're taught through media, social media, everything else, we're being discipled and strengthened. We're, we're doing more reps, more and more reps, and getting muscle memory because that's what our culture is preaching to us. That this is how we get ahead morally in society is by shaming others, throwing stones, nitpicking. That's how we get ahead morally. That's how we prove that we're right. Finding the faults of the other guy, racking up points. And the whole thing, is the, I mean, it's, it's just absolute hypocrisy. It's just total hypocrisy. We see in politics, the, the right and the left doing the same exact thing to each other. I mean, it's, it's revolting. But we don't see it, especially if we're in one of those camps. We don't see it because, well, we're in the camp throwing stones, and the awful thing is that Christians are, are right in the mix of all of this. We've kind of joined a camp, start throwing stones. And the scripture, this scripture here, gives us a lot of ammunition to fight against the very thing that we talked about last week. Biting and devouring one another, consuming one another. This scripture, <laughs> judge not so that you're not judged. Whatever measure you use, it can be used against you. This scripture should give us the ammunition 
to stop biting and devouring each other. This should be the conviction that we need. That's what we prayed for on Wednesday at our prayer meeting. It's what I spoke about in the the, the video that I sent out on Thursday. We can't be lobbing grenades at each other. Going back into Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we play gotcha with each other, the way our our, our quick trigger finger shoots first and then asks questions later, we're on the prowl waiting for the other person, the other side to mess up. So we say, I gotcha. See, you did it again. Say something a little too liberal, something a little too conservative, ready to pounce on each other with this self-righteous indignation. And we become very good at this. Because again, the media has been training us and discipling us. We don't even realize how good and how quick-triggered we've become. And then, now we have to ask ourselves, is this how we want others to judge us? Do we want others to be that quick-triggered with us? To be that quick to judge, to condemn, to play gotcha, to nitpick. Do we want others to be doing the same thing, the same measure that we're using with people? Do we want that same measure to come back to us? It's always quite convenient for us when we do it to others, but then when other people do it to us, then somehow that's not fair. That's not fair. Do we want to be like the the Pharisees who are quick to point out the sins of others, even even of those who are clearly in sin. This woman was caught in the actual act of adultery. Right? And, and they're, they're calling her out. On the surface, you kind of think, well, what's wrong with that? She was actually, there's no question, she was actually in sin. Do we want to be like these Pharisees who are quick to point out the sins of others, even of those who are clearly in sin, and call for their condemnation rather than desire God's mercy? rather than actually walk in patience? Or should instead we cry out for mercy? Should we instead seek to love them as we point them to truth, just as Jesus did? Again, he's not condoning her sin. He says, go and sin no more. He doesn't just look the other way and say, oh, don't worry about it. It's just adultery. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. But see, these Pharisees had no interest whatsoever in her well-being, They had no interest in her becoming whole, spiritually, physically, being freed from her sin. They had had no interest, no care for her whatsoever. In their self-righteousness, they wanted her judged. They wanted her condemned. They wanted her to fail, and they wanted Jesus to fail. They wanted failure for the other side. Now, how about you? Do you have a genuine interest and care for those that you have deemed or even that are clearly in sin? Do you have a genuine interest and care and desire for mercy even for your enemy? Do you have love and care and gentleness and compassion, the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to show them mercy and grace as Jesus did here, as he even did to an actual guilty adulterer Are you willing to do that? Even as he showed mercy and grace even to you? Or are you a fault finder? 
a speck spotter? Do you look for the flaws in others that you disagree with, looking for ways to kind of prove them wrong? You know, most of us, we know the feeling of, of being judged by others, and it's not a great feeling. Most of us, I think, could use a little bit less of it in our life, uh, and I, like you, I, I get judged a lot, and that's also just kind of part of my, my calling, my role as a pastor. Uh, as a shepherd, I remember um, even when we planted this church, I'm, I'm always warned by the older, more seasoned shepherds. They're like, hey, you know, just, just remember, sheep bite, right? They bite sometimes. You feed them. They love when they feed you. you they love when they, you help them stay away from wolves, but every once in a while, they start to bite. People often, um, I've seen this a lot, and I felt this a lot too, uh, kind of treat their, their pastors, their shepherds in ways that they would never even treat their, their co-workers or their boss or their family members or their friends. Uh, so many times over the years, um, I've been spoken to just uh, quite rudely or inconsiderately or accusatorily or presumptuously, but in all of that, and the word talks about this, the kind of shepherd that pastors are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be hirelings where we're just doing this for pay, and as soon as a wolf comes or hardship comes or as soon as a sheep bites, then that shepherd just says, ah, this isn't worth it. I'm just gonna go make some money somewhere else. No, we're not called to be hirelings. No, the shepherds that God calls are supposed to endure the cold, the weather, the wolves, the thieves, and the biting sheep, and we do it because we love the good shepherd, and we love the sheep, and that's why we stick through this. And because of all that, because I, I know that and I believe this and I want this, um, I, I have a, a commitment. And I'm not perfect in this commitment, but I, I do have a commitment. It's a commitment that I think every single believer should have. I aim, and again, not perfect, but I aim always to treat others, to respond to others, make judgments and assumptions about others in a way that not only is how I hope to be treated myself, but in a way that I believe Christ would treat me when I'm in sin. I look at the way he treated this woman, and I think to myself, when I see other people in sin, when I see other people sinning against me, judging me, condemning me, throwing grenades at me, how do I respond to them? Do I act like the Pharisees, ready to throw a stone back? Or do I act like Jesus and say, you know, here's this, these people, this person is sinning against me, throwing stones at me. Do I retaliate? Even if they're clearly in sin and I can, I can prove them wrong, or do I say, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna engage in that? That's how I, in turn, I want to respond. I wanna, you know, kind of, Shake my fist. Lord, they're gossiping. They're saying untrue things about me, but I have a commitment to respond in the way that God's word tells me how to treat other people. So I, I aim to be slow to judge and patiently endure, and sometimes I think I, I do that even kind of to a fault. Sometimes I endure a little bit too long, maybe as a, a punching bag for some folks here and there, but, but I would rather err on the side of opening not my mouth and patiently enduring and doing everything I can to walk as Jesus walked. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, when he, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges justly. 
A chapter later in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't, don't fear that or be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. But do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. You want to be able to stand before the Lord with a good conscience. How you respond to people, even when they're clearly sinning against you, how you respond to them, you want to be able to respond to them in a way where you stand with a clear conscience before the Lord. Lord, I didn't cast the first stone back at them. I didn't, I didn't shame them in public. I didn't want to judge them with the same measurement that they judged me. I wanted to look at the, the two by four in my own eye first. It says, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You kind of let your actions do the work. So I, I don't have a, a quick trigger finger. I, don't, I try not to go around and just beat my chest. And Instead, I, I try to assume the best. I try to hope for the best, trusting that the process of what God's word tells us how we ought to be, even though in the world's eyes that seems ineffective, it seems weak, it seems soft, it seems foolish, but I'm hoping and I'm trusting that it's the Lord's kindness that will bring about repentance or reconciliation or change. I do all I can to just trust in, in God's ways. I remember when I was, uh, the first year or so that I was a Christian, this is 97, 98, um, I've talked about Ron Ost quite a bit over the years, and uh, I'd go in his office, and you guys know I'd go in his office. I'm 18 or so, and I'm, I just kind of plop down on his green leather uh, couch, and I'd go, Ron, I'm sad. <laughs> and I would just be such an Eeyore, just so mopey, and, and he'd start asking me questions, kind of asking what I'm thinking, why I'm thinking this, all this stuff. And he's doing the whole thing, just smiling at me, just, you know, talking through some different things, some sins, some bad attitudes, all this kind of stuff. And I walk out just like, just, you know, whistling, just excited about life, excited about the Lord. I'm just smiling. And all of a sudden, I'm walking down the hallway, and I'm going, wait, did, did he just rebuke me for like 30 minutes? And he smiled the whole time? And, and, I, and, and I think back to what he actually said. I'm going, wow, he said some really aggressive things to me, but he did it with a smile, and he did it loving me. And I didn't even actually know I was being rebuked because the the way he does it, the way that he approaches me, the way that I'm convinced that this, this guy, he loves me. And I walk away just shocked that I just spent 30 minutes getting rebuked by this guy. I have done the same, I tried to do the same thing in my life, and I've, I've really kind of learned that, I think, from him. He was kind of my example for that. I, I aim to treat my brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who maybe judge me or accuse me, I try to, I try to treat them as if they are actually the bride of Christ, because they are. I have to look at people. I have to look at people and remind myself, even when people are coming against me, I have to remind them, that's the bride of Christ. Hey, husbands and, and wives even, you, you know the feeling when someone mistreats or speaks badly about your spouse or maybe your kids, disrespects them, gossips about them. When 
when we stand in accusation and disrespect and slander and we judge and condemn other believers, we are accusing and slandering and condemning Jesus' bride. We have to remember this. You think he's going to stand for that? Husbands and wives, you, you know the feeling. And even when someone has, another believer has lobbed a grenade at us, and our, we just we get riled up, we want to lob one back, we want to prove ourselves, we have to remind ourselves, that person's part of the bride of Christ. Far be it from me, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to fire back at the Lord's bride. He says this, Again, going back to verse 2, with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if someone maligns you, we ought to aim, and whatever is appropriate, to actually give them respect back, even if they haven't respected us. Turn the other cheek. Esteem them as greater than yourself. And that's, that's what I aim to do. It's my commitment. And again, I, I fail at this. I'm imperfect in this. Sometimes my, my, my actions might do it, but I'm, my heart's not quite there. But I, I do these things. I, I, in faith, I, I walk that direction, hoping that my heart's going to follow. And I'll sometimes say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this or not say this, whatever, because I think that's what I should say. That's how I should respond. This is how I should show them grace and mercy, love, even though they haven't showed that to me. And my heart's not there. My heart's bitter. I'm bummed. I want to defend myself, but if I do this, I'm hoping that my heart will follow because I treasure God's word and I treasure obeying his word and where your treasure is, your heart will also be. So I'm going to, if I put my treasure there, I'm hoping my heart's going to follow there. Sometimes it's not though. And so, but I, I, I in faith, this is what I aim to do. I just, I, I love people because Jesus loves people and I love them because he first loved me. And church, I think this is what pains me the most, I think, in these past few months, because I want us to be that kind of church, this kind of church that we see in these scriptures here, a church that isn't locked and loaded, ready to cast stones. I, I want us to be a patient, enduring, gracious towards each other kind of church, because I think that attitude, that mindset, that's the work and that's the ways of Christ. And we are his bride and we ought to act as if we are one with him because we are one with him. We gotta start acting like we're actually the bride of Christ who is one with our Savior. We ought to have the attitude of Christ towards each other even when we mistreat each other. And we ought to have that also even towards the world and towards our enemies, towards the woman caught in adultery, towards the woman with the speck in their eye. So going back to verse 3 there in Matthew, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log, that two by four, that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are hypocrites when we go around thinking everyone else has a speck in their eye. No one sees so perfectly and righteously as me. Everyone else has sin worthy of condemnation, but there's no way we possibly could. 
We see everything clearly. Things in the Bible, things in politics, things in the world, things in my friends' lives, things in my extended families. I see everything clearly. How do people more, how come more people don't ask me for their opinion? I could fix all their problems because I see the world so perfectly clearly. And this is what we think. We think that our lens has 20-20 vision. And we think that because oftentimes we're wearing the lenses of the Pharisees. We're putting on their glasses. And we see through the eyes of Pharisees. But Jesus says here, no, you don't see clearly. You don't. We're all biased in certain different ways because of sin or upbringing or whatever it is. We have distortions and blind spots. The way we've been treated, all these different things. We don't see clearly. We need to see more and more clearly. And we're going to go around calling out other people for their speck in their eye, but yet we can't actually even see clearly. And in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear he does not want his disciples to be like these hypocritical Pharisees who are harsh and critical and unmerciful and presumptuous and self-righteous, yet spiritually blind to their own sinful condition. He does not want his followers to be like that. He makes this clear. They quickly found the fault in others while minimizing their own sin. And the crazy thing about this is Jesus actually validates the Pharisees' claim that she is in sin. He doesn't disagree with them on that. He totally agrees with them on this. He also does not say that the speck in the other person's eye doesn't exist. There, there is a speck there. They're right. Judge not does not mean that there's never a proper time or place to make a judgment or to point out something in someone's life. Saying judge not does not mean that there's never a time for that, but that there is a sinful way to judge others. There's a sinful way to call each other out in sin. And there's a proper way, a loving way, a gracious way, a merciful way. And we ought to make judgments in the same way that Jesus does, the same manner, the same tone that Jesus does, Specifically, as we've been talking about the last couple weeks, seasoned with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Because it is possible, church, in our rightness, even for the places you are accurate, you see something, it's sin, it's clear, it's undisputable. But it's possible in our rightness to actually sin while being right. That is possible. That is possible. It's the same principle as last week. People who rightly, rightly declare, I follow Christ. Good, good, that's, that's good. You should follow Christ. But Paul points even that statement I was saying, but you're doing it sinfully. You're doing it in a way that is self-righteous and arrogant and divisive, and it needs to be repented of. You can rightly declare, this woman is an adulterer, yet be wrong in your hearts towards her and towards the Lord. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23 about the Pharisees. Woe to you, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin. All these things which are good and right to do. All these things are commands of the Lord. They look good on the outside. You know, you're going to church, you're going to community group, you're reading your Bible, you're doing all the right stuff, tithing everything. But he says, but you've neglected the weightier, more important matters of the law doesn't mean that tithing mint and dill is not important. 
but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is this, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things, those weightier matters, you should have done those things without neglecting the tithing of mint and dill. But they're doing these things, but neglecting this. He goes, no, you ought to do both. You are blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, what does that mean, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel? So imagine this. Kids, kids, imagine this, okay? Imagine you go to a restaurant. Kids, what's your favorite drink to get at a restaurant? What is it? Oh, lemonade. That's my favorite, too. All right, so you go to a restaurant, and you get a lemonade. And this place is known for their lemonade. It's awesome. You get your lemonade, and in the lemonade is a little tiny gnat or a little fly, right? And you're looking at this little fly. What are you saying? You're going, oh, this is disgusting. Oh, and now you get all mad. You're like, I can't believe someone gave me this lemonade with this gnat. And then you, you ask, you, you know, you go full Karen and ask to talk to the manager and all this kind of stuff, right? And, and so, so you, you send this thing back. You're demanding an apology, all this kind of stuff. And they say, well, can we get you something else? No, 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 I've, I'll, I'll take care of this myself. So you, you pick up your, your bedazzled thermal flask and you bring this thing out. And, and then you, you start pouring out this drink, your own drink that you brought yourself. And it's this nice, cold glass of water that a camel took a bath in, right? And it comes out all brown and dirty and gross and smelly. And then you start, you look at this glass, you go, now this, this is a good drink right here. All right, this is just hypocrisy, right? We, we kind of make a big deal about the tiniest little gnat. And then all of a sudden we just guzzle down this big, tall glass of camel water. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You, you, you make a big deal out of something so small, and meanwhile, you're totally ignoring the fact that you're gross over here. Like, you're doing nasty things over here. You, you, you tithe, and you're so good on the outside, but on the inside, you're in sin. You're, you're, you're acting in judgment, condemnation, self-righteousness. It's hypocrisy. It's the same concept as the, the speck and the plank and the eye. Uh, Christmas is upon us. You guys, I've, I've used this example before. You guys remember Christmas vacation, right? When Clark finally gets all the lights going, right? And he's so excited and he gathers all the family out there and, and he's just like elated. And then what does his father-in-law, he comes up and what does his father-in-law say to him? He goes, the little lights aren't twinkling, Clark. And he's like, I know that. And that's how it is sometimes. We, we kind of look at someone's life and we just focus on the smallest little thing. We know the little lights aren't twinkling. Okay, I know, I, I know. We make the biggest deal out of the smallest thing and meanwhile neglect this whole other part of life. This whole other part of people. And we get so focused like Pharisees, self-righteous fault finders. And Jesus calls them blind guides. But interestingly though, even as they're blind, they are still able to do right things. Tithe the mint, the dill, the cumin. And this is what makes it hard for us to even see our Pharisaism because we're doing a lot of the right things. We're calling out sin. We're, we're tithing, going to church. We're all that right. So, so we feel very validated. We feel like we're in the right because we're doing stuff right on the outside. So these guys, they're smart, savvy, got their ducks in a row. They're really good at pointing out the smallest of specks. They're good at exposing sinners and not afraid to call them out in public. They kind of seem noble because they're not afraid of, of, of man. They're just doing these things kind of for righteousness sake and for the glory of the Lord. But in their blindness, they're doing it wrongly. They neglect the bigger picture. 
in a few weeks, you guys are going to be having Thanksgiving. Family and friends, extended family, don't be a Pharisee. You might already be loathing some of those conversations, but don't go in as a Pharisee. As we kind of switch gears even in our country, social media is going to be fighting for your allegiance, fighting for your heart, and that fight will rage on. The enemy knows how to push your buttons, how to get hooks in you and pull you into that conversation, into the stone throwing, the fault finding, the virtue signaling, the spec spotting, the grandstanding. And it feels so good because you're standing up for righteousness, calling out those sinners, exposing the speck in other people's eyes. But remember, church, you cannot see the plank in your eye. And we don't want to be known as those kinds of people who just throw stones and spec spot. Now, I have no problem. I'll just close on this. And I hope that this is how we all walk. I hope this is how our church would walk forward. I have no problem admitting that I don't see everything in life clearly. I've made mistakes. I've made mistakes of judgment. Um, I've made mistakes of assumptions. Uh, I've made mistakes and... Um, defended myself when I shouldn't have. Uh, I know that I don't see everything in this world clearly. And by God's grace, I had a radical overhaul in 1997. I once was blind and now I see. And over those last 23 years, I've, by God's grace, been fine-tuning that vision. Maybe blind spot over here comes into clearer picture than over here. My peripheral vision kind of comes a little better I got a blind spot right in the middle. I didn't even know it was there. And all of a sudden, I see something. God has sanctified me bit by bit, bringing more into focus as the gospel lenses, not Pharisee lenses, which I didn't realize. Sometimes I'm wearing Pharisee lenses, but I start making these adjustments by God's word, by the work of the Holy Spirit. I've gradually, over 23 years, you, you see more, you see differently. And ever since then, 23 years ago, it's been a work in progress. I see this world today differently than I did even five years ago. I treat people, people in sin. I even treat adulterers differently today than I did 10 years ago, radically differently. I was far more like a Pharisee 10 years ago, far more. But by God's grace, he's been changing me. And I look at the people in my life, even those who sin against me, I, I look at them differently than I did five years ago, 10 years ago, and I want to continue in that direction and I hope that we all do. This is a work of God's grace. We need the work of the Holy Spirit working through God's word. I'll close with this quote that's in your notes here, and then I'll pray. This is Alexander Strzok from that same book that I would recommend again to you guys to pick up. Um, it's called When You Bite and Devour uh, by that guy right there. So you can look that up on, on Amazon. He says, it's impossible for us to speak the truth in love without the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that seems obvious, maybe it doesn't, but usually we either speak the truth without much love, which is a Pharisee. Sometimes we just act in love and we're afraid to speak truth. We just kind of brush sin under the rug. We just kind of don't address it. Neither one of those two things is what Jesus did in this story with the woman caught in adultery. He spoke truth, go and sin no more, but he did it in love. This is what we're called to do. And this is not easy, church. This is like, you know, walking on a razor's edge. 
And you'll fall on this side sometimes. You'll be too judgmental. Sometimes you'll fall on this side and be maybe too uh, gracious in your, like, your own self-graciousness. But we, just, we, I, we hope to fail forward. Right? You, you, you fail forward. You make mistakes, but you say, but Lord, by your grace, I'm going to learn every time I fail. Too judgmental, too gracious, whatever. You're going to fail forward. By God's grace, we'll walk in the Spirit, speaking the truth in love. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you are a holy God, a God who has condemned sin in the flesh, has done everything necessary to do away with our sin and condemn that sin, cast that sin into the lake of fire and yet also be able to spare us, show us mercy, show us grace, while still being fully just and yet fully merciful. You don't look the other way. You don't just ignore our sin. You've dealt with sin on the cross. Your son Jesus took upon all of our sin, the sin of this woman caught in adultery, the sins that I've committed, He's taken all that upon his shoulders. And you've unleashed your wrath and your anger, your your just anger against that sin through your son Jesus. And then you've called us to yourself to be your sons and your daughters. To be called even the bride of Christ, becoming one with him. And we need the help of your Holy Spirit, the help of your word to lead us and guide us to become more and more unified firstly with Christ so that we also then become more unified with each other. That rather than being stone throwers, we would be grace givers. We would not be speck spotters, fault finders, wanting and hoping for those who are against us to fail, not wanting to revile back when people mistreat us, but rather to be more and more like your son who laid his life down, even for his enemies. But we cannot do this on our own. We can't do this in our own strength and power and flesh. Uh, we, we like self-preservation. We like defending ourselves. We like proving others right or wrong and proving us right. And so we need the work of your spirit. We need to crucify the works of the flesh and learn how more and more to walk and keep in step with the spirit. Help us, teach us, help us to grow in this. Teach us how to repent of the works of the flesh and surrender to you. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.